0: The text for our sermon this morning is Job 21. I'm going to read verses 7 through 16. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, Depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand... The counsel of the wicked is far from me. At this point, we will call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. This morning, we're going to learn about the Lord's Supper. You're all too young yet, but one day you'll be old enough and you'll take part too. There are a lot of things, actually, that you can't do yet, but you will someday do when you're a little older. Right now, you're not old enough to drive. But in a few years, fewer than your parents want to think about. You'll start learning to drive. You're a teenager, you'll get your license. There are a lot of things like that. It's not that it isn't for you, it's just you're not ready for it yet. You're still too young. And even the things that you do now, you didn't do before. You couldn't do when you were little. When you were a baby, mom never gave you a chicken leg for dinner. You couldn't chew it yet. You didn't have enough teeth. I mean, maybe you had three or four teeth, but that's not enough that you meet. But now you're a little bigger, you have all your teeth. And so you can eat meat. Now, we are all made up of two parts. We have a body and we have a soul. The body is the part of you that you can see. Your soul is that part of you that you can't see. And when you close your eyes and think about your favorite toy, in your mind you can see it. You can't show anyone else that picture, though, because you're not doing it with your body. It's your mind that does that. And your mind is the thinking part of your soul. Well, our souls need to eat to be strong, just like our bodies do. Our bodies eat food. Our souls eat truth. But that truth has to be learned little by little. It's just like when you were a baby, you didn't eat meat. You couldn't eat meat, but now you can. As you grew, you became able to eat more kinds of food. And our souls are the same way. The Lord's Supper is like food that you need strong teeth to eat. If you went into the 10th grade math class, you might see a math problem on the board that you couldn't understand. It would have numbers and letters mixed together. And if the teacher told you to answer it, you couldn't. You wouldn't understand it, so you wouldn't even know how to answer it. But as you grow up, you'll learn more and more things about math, and one day you'll be in 10th grade, you'll see that math problem, and you think, oh, well, that's easy. The Lord's Supper is a meal for our souls understanding what it means takes some growing up to help us understand that it is a meal for our souls and not for our bodies. That's why we only get a little bite of bread and a little sip of wine. It's not a meal for our bodies. It's for our souls. The bread and wine remind us of Jesus' body and blood. His body was very badly hurt and He bled for our sins when He died on the cross. When we eat the Lord's Supper, God feeds our souls with that truth. Now, you children don't eat of it yet, and that's because you need, to be, you need to grow to be able to understand it and what it means. If you eat it now, it wouldn't mean anything for you, and we're only supposed to eat of it if we understand it. That's why we have Sunday school classes for you. Then when you get a little bigger, you come to the catechism class with me before the Sunday school class starts on Sunday morning. Then when you're in 7th and 8th grade, you come to confirmation class, and in that class you'll learn about all the things that we believe as Christians. You'll understand what the Bible teaches, and when you've done that, you'll be ready to eat the Lord's Supper. Just like your parents didn't let you choke on a big piece of meat when you were a baby, God doesn't want you trying to eat truth that's still hard for you to understand. He wants you to grow and to learn so that you'll be able, you'll be ready to eat the Lord's Supper, and it will make you strong. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive, to be turned and ruled by it, until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. God's ways often have a two-sided nature to them. The Passover, which was life for the Israelites, was death to the Egyptians. The same pillar of fire that lit the camp of the Israelites was a dense cloud, pillar of darkness that swallowed the Egyptian army. It was light to one, it was darkness to the other. The same flood that destroyed the wicked saved Noah and his family. Jesus' death is simultaneously the greatest display of God's love And the greatest display of God's hatred. God hates sin so much that His own Son had to die if He bore it. God loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for our sins. Sins that He hates that much. The sacraments are signs and seals of God's covenant. And the covenant has this same two-sided nature. It comes with blessings and curses. The words of our text highlight this double aspect of God's dealings. Job is talking about the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Job himself was a very prosperous man. And his point is that a man's outward condition is not a reliable indicator of his inward condition. Just because the man is living the life of Riley doesn't mean that God's favor is on him. Likewise, just because a man is suffering great trouble doesn't mean that God is displeased with him. For the righteous... Prosperity and adversity are instruments that God uses for his benefit. For the unbeliever, prosperity is a judgment that exposes his ingratitude to God, and adversity is just a foretaste of greater judgment to come. Our text demonstrates that principle. So I hope it'll help us to understand the the double nature of the supper. That's why I chose this passage. The supper is a means of grace to believers. And it's a judgment of death upon unbelievers. Now We talked about earlier, existence, our existence on earth, our existence has two parts. It begins with birth, and then there's the continuation of life. Life begins, and then it must be protected and provided for. And the two sacraments are a spiritual picture lesson of this fact. Baptism signifies the new birth. The supper signifies feeding that life. See, when we complicate things and delve into weird speculation, we end up losing all of the comfort that the sacraments are supposed to give us. Well, our outline this morning is, number one, the fulfilled Passover, number two, signified and sealed, and thirdly, the question of properly partaking of the supper, The supper is the fulfilled Passover. Jesus said so in Luke 22. We read it earlier. I have desired, he said, to eat this Passover with you. I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled. And immediately after he said that, he instituted the supper. And he himself did not eat or drink. He distributed it to his disciples. If we think about the Passover, what it was. The Israelites had to kill a lamb and spread some of its blood on the doorposts of their homes. When God saw that blood, He would pass over them, hence the name. The houses without this blood covering were judged with death. That blood was a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus. And because these people's sins were forgiven, God could dwell in their midst. They had the privilege of having supper with the Lord. God was their host, feeding them a rich meal. To this day, that sign remains. We have a supper in the church called the Lord's Supper. because It's called the Lord's because it belongs to Him. He is the host. In the supper, believers sit with Him at one table. And now instead of eating lamb and bitter herbs, we eat bread that has been broken, and we drink wine that has been poured out because these are more appropriate signs of the fulfillment of the Passover. They represent to us the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is as close to us in the supper as He was to the Israelites on the night of the first Passover. Now, the Passover had two aspects. It's important to see this. The lamb's, there was sacrifice and there was sacrament. The lamb's blood that was smeared on the doorposts, that was a sacrifice. It covered the sins of the residents of the home. The meal was a sacrament of communion with the Lord, and it was based on that sacrifice. They couldn't have communion with the Lord apart from the sacrifice. And so the meal signified the sacrifice and sealed to them the promise that this sacrifice was for them. The Passover sacrifice came before the meal that represented it. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper before His sacrifice which represents it. So that links the two of them together, but the reverse order shows that Jesus' work was the fulfillment of the Passover. Because one of the rules about the Passover was that the leftovers had to be destroyed once the meal was done. You couldn't keep them, you know, for lunch the next day like you do with your Thanksgiving leftovers. Now, the gospel says, we read it earlier, after supper, Jesus took the bread and wine. Before you could say that the meal was officially done, we got to clean up and burn the leftovers, Jesus put two of the elements to a new use. That's an important detail because it shows us that the Lord's Supper was the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus took elements from the old and carried them forward into the new. Jesus waited until after the meal before He did this. At that first Lord's Supper, He showed that the old form had been done away with. That night, the disciples partook of the Passover for the last time as Old Testament saints, and then they partook of the Lord's Supper for the first time as New Testament saints. So the connection was cemented in their minds, and the old form could be forever left behind. Now, sacraments are signs, and generally speaking, signs aren't big, are they? They're just as big as they need to be to to make their point. And that's why, for instance, in baptism, we don't give a full bath. A little sprinkle of water is enough to make the point. We don't eat a seven-course meal at the Passover. A bite and a sip are enough to convey the idea of a meal. Something to eat, something to drink. Christ replaced the Passover meal with a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. Just enough to get the point across. I actually think that the best argument that the supper is a sacrament and not a sacrifice as Rome teaches is that Jesus gave us bread to eat and not lamb. To call the supper a sacrifice is to say that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't sufficient and needs therefore to be repeated. Hebrews 10 verse 11 tells us that the reason that all those Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over throughout the years was because they didn't actually take away sin. And then in the very next verse, Hebrews 10, 12, Paul contrasts this with Christ's sacrifice, which he calls one sacrifice for sins forever. So we come now to that second question of what then is signified and sealed in the supper. The liturgy that we use for the Lord's Supper that's on the pew cards, that comes from a German Reformed book of church order. It actually was in the old blue hymnals that Friedens used many years ago. I'd like to point your attention to the wording on those cards. You don't have to read, you probably have it memorized like I do, but I just want to use that wording because it, it says everything that I would like to say and it says it's so much better than I could do left on my own. We read there that the Lord's Supper is five things to us. First of all, it's the abiding sign of His precious death. It's the seal of His presence in the church by the Holy Spirit. It's the mystical exhibition of His one offering of Himself. It's the pledge of His undying love to His people. And it's the bond of His living union and fellowship with them to the end of time. So we see the word sign and seal. And then those words exhibition and pledge mean the exact same thing. And when we eat the supper, we're feasting in faith with the Lord... And with all the saints of all ages, that's why we say that the Supper is the bond of His living union and fellowship with us to the end of time. That's also why we say that we're not dealing with mere signs, but with the spiritual realities that the signs represent. In order for a thing to be a sacrament, it must be both a sign and a seal. A sign alone isn't a sacrament. That's like raising a toast to your best friend at the dinner after his funeral, you know, to Danny boy. When we drink the cup, it isn't a toast to Jesus. It is a true seal of everything his death accomplished for his people. Our communion in the body and blood of the Lord is a spiritual mystery. That means it's something that we can't see with our eyes and we can't really understand with our minds. And so, to help us, God gives us visible signs. They're not a bare figure. They are combined with the reality and the substance, and that's why it is appropriate to call the bread Christ's body, because it presents and represents to us, to our faith, His body. When we see this visible sign, we're supposed to consider what it represents and who gave it. The bread is given to us to figure the body of Christ with the command to eat it. It's given to us by God. Now, if God only gave us bread and wine and left the spiritual reality behind, well, then the sacrament would have been given under false colors. The supper is a sacrament, a visible sign and seal of invisible spiritual reality. It was instituted by Christ to signify and seal the grace of God in the gospel. Christ instituted the supper. The bread and the wine signify His death. I mean, shed blood is a picture of death, right? And the word body, of course, is a reference to death. If you heard someone say that they found a body, you know that they mean a corpse. If you would ask, well, "What did you do?" If they said, "We gave him a ride home," no, you didn't find a body. You found somebody unconscious or, or stra- lost. If you say a body, you don't call, you don't give them a ride home. You call the mor- Well, you call the police, and they call the morgue. You wouldn't call it a body if the person were alive. Christ connected the bread and the wine to his death by showing that food nourishes the body the same way that his sacrifice nourishes our faith. Now, Rome claims that the essence of the bread and wine are changed. When the priest consecrates the bread and wine, Rome says that a physical change takes place. Even though you can't see it, even though you can't smell it, Even though you can't taste it, the bread and wine are no longer bread and wine. They're actually transformed into the very body and blood of Jesus. And it wasn't really until the late 1200s in the works of Thomas Aquinas that any defense of this idea was even formulated. And Aquinas didn't use Scripture. He used the philosophy of Aristotle. Now, that's as much as I'm going to say about that because it it would bore us to tears and because we instinctively know it's not true. If Rome's doctrine were true, the supper wouldn't be a sacrament because a sacrament is a sign. It's not the thing itself. The sign that says low bridge is not the bridge. A sacrament is a sign, and signs point to something else. They don't point to themselves. Now, question 78 gets to that point. It tells us something we've already noted several times, that God calls the sacraments by the name of His covenant. And God's reason for doing that is, is pretty obvious. He wants us to, to associate the things with each other. When God speaks this way, He's emphasizing the reality and the reliability of His promise. We pointed out already when we, when we witness a baptism, God intends to strengthen our faith. He's reminding us of His promise to wash us from our sins. He's reminding us that we must be born again, And He's reminding us of His promise to do that. So when we use the words Christ's body and blood, we're speaking of God's covenant in the same way that He does. When God made the covenant, He gave us something that signified it. And when we partake of that thing, its promises are sealed to us. We saw that last week when we talked about baptism. If baptism isn't the actual washing away of sin, why does the Bible call it that? Well, we get another form of that same question today. If the bread and wine aren't actually the body and blood of Jesus, why does Christ call them His body and blood? And the answer is the same. If the sign and seal don't actually represent something real, then the whole thing's a charade. Food and drink nourish our bodies. They support life. In the same way that food and drink sustain and support health and life, the body and blood of Jesus support and sustain a healthy spiritual life just as surely as eating a healthy meal does your body good partaking of the supper in true faith does your soul good how do you clean dirt off your body well you wash it off with water how does god remove the stain of sin from your soul he washes you with the blood of christ even a child can understand that washing gets rid of dirt how do you strengthen a tired body you eat a good meal How does God feed our souls to salvation? He nourishes our faith with a feast of truth. Even a child can understand that. And that's why there's something incredibly sad when the sacraments are turned into dark mysteries buried under ideas borrowed from the world of philosophy. A meal is the, the easiest thing in the world to understand. And that brings us to our third question, third point, the question of partaking properly. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to examine ourselves at the supper. Misunderstanding this command has been the source of a lot of anguish and emotional turmoil for many sincere Christians. I was once one myself, and for that reason, I believe it is very important to discuss. Now, the command comes right in the middle of a rebuke related to an abuse of the supper that was going on in Corinth. Paul says they weren't rightly discerning the Lord's body. And of course, the first question that comes to mind is, what does Paul mean when he says the Lord's body? Is he referring to Christ's personal physical body? Or does he mean the church, Christ's mystical body? And I think it's clear that Paul is referring to that second meaning. He's talking about the church as Christ's body. Because what were the Corinthians doing? Well, they were celebrating a supper the supper, after they had had a big meal, kind of like a potluck, except it wasn't a shared meal. Everyone brought their own food and ate whatever they had brought. And a meal, by definition, is shared. So one family's over here eating prime rib, and other family's over there eating bologna sandwiches. The meal separated the congregation by social status. And of course, the social status wasn't the problem. The problem was that it came into the church in a way that hid, obscured, their unity in Christ. And so Paul says, the way you guys are behaving shows that you don't understand what it means for the church to be the Lord's body. The body is one, and the way you eat your meal denies that oneness. So when Paul says, let a man examine himself, he's not calling for painful introspection, Let me sit down and ask myself a thousand and one questions to see if I'm worthy of this meal. I've known people, was once one myself, that wouldn't partake of the supper out of fear of bringing judgment on themselves because they thought there might just be something that they hadn't remembered, something they hadn't repented hard enough for. And that is incredibly sad, isn't it? Because they're looking inward to themselves instead of upward to Jesus. The glory of the gospel, as Luther put it, is that it all takes place outside of us. When we partake of the supper, something that is signified to us is that we are part of Christ's church. Christ's body is one. So Paul's exhortation is, are you a living member of this body? And does your treatment of other members agree with that claim of membership? Because God's people are one, and because they're united to Him, well, the Passover had features that depicted that. It was done at a specific time of day, which means that the whole church was joined in supper with the Lord, even though they were all meeting in their own homes. The unity of the church and the the church's union with Christ was also signified by the fact that none of the lamb's bones were broken, the lamb was cooked and served whole. And Jesus retained that feature in the Lord's Supper. He took one loaf of bread and he fed the disciples with it. And they all drank from one shared cup. I suppose you should know that the consistory does use one loaf of bread and cut it up. And they pour the cups from one source of wine. We might overlook that because when we see the elements, they're already divided up. But it's important to remember and recognize what that signifies. The call to examine ourselves is to ask whether or not we are in the faith. Proper self-examination is of one's faith. It's not navel-gazing. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Do I deserve this? That kind of examination robs us of the comfort that the supper is supposed to give us. It's very dangerous, and it's dangerous for three reasons. Excuse me. First of all, The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful, so if we were to sit down and try to count up our sins, we're sure to overlook something, which means we're either going to be depressed or impressed. My sins are too many to be forgiven, or hey, I ain't as bad as I thought I was. In both cases, I'm looking inward to myself instead of outward to Christ, and so it's self-defeating. Secondly, this kind of self-analysis gives us the impression that, that grace can be earned. If I just repent hard enough, then I can be worthy to receive God's grace. And third and worse is that it gives us the impression that God's grace has to be earned. I mean, what else could be meant by saying that before you come to the table, you have to stretch yourself on the rack of conscience to see whether or not there's something you haven't repented of yet? When we want to understand a thing we go back to its beginning. And this question of eating and drinking unworthily is really easy to understand if we ask that question in reference to the Passover. What would have happened if an Israelite had killed the lamb, roasted it, ate it with his family, but had refused to put its blood on the doorposts of his house? Well, the answer is obvious the angel of death would not have passed over his house. Death would have stricken his house. He would have eaten unworthily because he didn't have the covering of blood. He had no faith in God and the sacrifice God had provided. His refusal to put the blood on his door was proof that he didn't have faith. Eating that meal wouldn't have saved his life. It would have meant death. Remember, God put an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to Eden after He had cast Adam out so that Adam couldn't eat from the tree of life. Eating the supper when it isn't for you secures death, not life. Now, because of this solemn reality, some churches practice what is called closed communion. Their view is that the sacredness of the meal means that it has to be fenced, as they say. True closed communion would mean, would require that everyone meet with the pastor or the elder board and be examined to the board's satisfaction about the genuineness of their faith. Now, Scripture says, let a man examine himself. It doesn't say let a committee examine the man. The burden of examination is on our own shoulders. You know, Jesus let Judas Iscariot partake of the table, full well-knowing, that he was eating judgment to himself. As soon as the meal was over, Judas went out and hanged himself. Jesus knew that would happen, and he let him eat of the meal anyway. Because it's not the duty of someone else to determine if your faith is genuine. That is a question that only you can ask, and you alone must answer. And one of the reasons that I love this German Reformed liturgy for the supper is because it makes this point really clear. Before I ever read that, I knew it here But I just, I couldn't get it out here. I can't partake of the supper because I'm a sinner. No, that's exactly why I need the supper. This is a seal of God's promise to feed my soul with the sacrifice for my sins. I need the supper precisely because I am a sinner. I'm unworthy to receive this great benefit. No, that's why it's such a beautiful display of grace. I don't deserve it. Nobody does. I'm unworthy, and that's why I need the grace of Christ that is sealed to me in the supper. If access to the table depended on our faithfulness, none of us would be allowed to approach it. We come because of Christ's promise. We come because of Christ's faithfulness. Even when we show ourselves faithless, God remains faithful. God remains faithful to His Word, faithful to His covenant, and in God's faithfulness, there is hope. I'm an unworthy sinner, and that's exactly who the meal is for. Christ Jesus came, not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. I don't eat a meal because I don't need it. I eat a meal because I'll die without it. As really and truly as food and drink preserve your body. The death of Jesus preserves your soul. And here's that double aspect that Job was talking about earlier. Feeding on Christ's death is what provides us life. He was judged so that we could be acquitted. He died so we could live And it is His very death that gives us life. And it gives us life as really and truly as food nourishes our bodies. Let us pray.